Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Tina, you ready to get into God's Word? We are going to finish up First Peter today. I promise I'm going to get through the book. Man, I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed teaching it. But here's, here's one thing I want to make very clear. The Bible is clear about the fact that God never, and I say never, intended that we would walk with him without the use of our minds. Amen? <laughs> God wants us to walk within and to obtain a personal relationship with him, an intimate relationship with him, a relationship that is based on us comprehending and understanding truth. In fact, in Psalms 32.8, the Bible says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. He then goes on to say this, Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding. Listen, church, there is no virtue in ignorance. There's no virtue in a lack of information. We need to know God through his word. Psalm 73, 22, he writes this, When my heart was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant, and I was like the beast before you. Now think about this. This author is saying that senselessness and ignorance before God is the characteristic of an animal, not you and me. In the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 118, you'll remember these very familiar words, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 4, 22, we read the words, words of condemnation for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. In Hosea, the prophet says in chapter 4, what would sum up a very important truth is this, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Some of you are thinking, man, Pastor Justin's getting at it right away. God has never valued mindlessness. Never. It's not at all what we see throughout the Bible. Philippians 1.9 says this, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Go through that backwards with me for a minute. We're to be filled with the fruit of righteousness so that we may be sincere and blameless, and to do that, we need to approve the things that are excellent, and to approve the things that are excellent, we're going to need to know, we're going to need to possess real knowledge and all discernment. What a needed reminder for us today. A part of our calling of Jesus is to know, to know. We're called to use our minds to understand the truth that God's revealed through his word. And I'm not saying, don't, don't put words in my mouth today. I'm not saying that, that God doesn't speak to us through experience. 
grew up in a Pentecostal church. I've experienced the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has definitely spoken to me through experiences. He does, but those experiences don't necessarily determine doctrine. So listen, listen real quick here. Sometimes believers, they get doctrine and experience mixed up. For example, let's say a person comes to faith by experiencing the kindness of Jesus. Then that same person starts teaching that the essence of conversion is experiencing Jesus' kindness. Well, it's biblically true, and it's an incredible fact that Jesus is kind, but it isn't necessarily helpful or, or, to, or biblical to make your experience of this truth the center of doctrinal definition. Understand what I'm saying? Okay, Rufus Jones wrote this. He said, whenever I go to church, I feel like unscrewing my head and placing it under the pew in front of me because I never have any use for anything above my collar button. What a sad statement. I hope that's not the case here at New Heights Church. We're not here just to make you feel. We're here to make you think because proper action and proper response comes with a proper understanding. The mind is very important in Christianity. It's important in following Jesus. The Bible describes the mind of a sinner. It describes the mind of someone who's un, an, an unregenerate, the mind of one without God. In fact, Romans 1.28, it says a depraved mind. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, it says he has a blinded mind. In Ephesians 4.17, he has a futile mind or an empty mind or a useless mind. And in Colossians 1.21, it says he has an alienated mind. That's alienated from God. And then in 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says this, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking thought every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our thoughts have to be taken captive in order to obey Jesus. And you want to know where God reveals his will is in his word. It's in his Bible that God reveals his will. Will, man, I sound like a southerner today. Our minds are filled with divine truth. And as the filling of, of the mind with divine truth becomes woven into the fabric of our lives, then that begins to control our conduct. William James said this, the greatest discovery of my generation is that human beings can alter their lives by altering their attitudes. Well, we all know Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said this, a man is what he thinks. Well, guess what, Ralph? The Bible says, for a man, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So New Heights Church, this is, this is why we preach God's word because the purpose of preaching and the purpose of teaching is to implant truth into your mind, to put it in your mind, to persuade, to convince, to teach in an accurate way. That's the purpose. The Bible is supposed to go into you and then, and then becomes a part of you. Just like how you eat food and it becomes a part of the body and the life and the energy in which you live. That's what the truth of God's word does when it's preached and when it's taught accurately. It's supposed to go into you and change who you are. That's why they say you are what you eat. That's why Asher always says, Dad's a Big Mac. <laughs> One day I want to stand before God and I want to say I preached the truth. And that gave my sheep a chance to be strong. Because you know what strength translates to? It translates into action. 
I want you guys, as, as your pastor, as your spiritual leader, my prayer and my, my desire is that you live a life to the fullest, that you experience God's grace and his mercy, but you also experience God's power. Heaven awaits, but heaven's also here on earth. Man, you are, you are to live a life full of God's power. It's my prayer. And it all starts in the mind. It starts with what we know. It starts with the right attitudes because what we feed ourselves with and what we know becomes our thought patterns. And our thought patterns are going to develop our attitudes. And our attitudes are going to control our behavior. And if you have mindless Christianity, if you don't hear precise, clear truth from the Word of God brought to you persuasively, then you're not going to have a clear mind and you will not have the truth that translates into action, which translates into attitude. So it's crucial, it's crucial, church, that you expose yourself to the Word of God. And our goal on Sunday morning is to give you a presentation of God's Word and have you receive it and apply it to your life that you would begin to cultivate these certain attitudes in your life that define who you are. You need to continuously be exposed to the truth because on the other hand, you're, you're constantly being exposed to lies through TV, through movies, through music, and this is why it's so crucial on Sunday that we preach God's word, not my opinion, not my philosophy, but God's word. You've got to put yourself under the sound teaching of the word of God, and you need to do it more than just Sunday so that your life might be nourished through God's word. This is crucial in surviving. That's why I love the book of 1 Peter because as Peter draws an end to this letter, he brings us back to the basics. We started last week. We're going to finish today. He's talking about certain attitudes that you need to cultivate in your life. Verse 10, he's going to talk about an attitude of hope. Look with me at verse 10. It says, After you have suffered a while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You know, one of the greatest titles of God is found in this passage, the God of all grace. <laughs> I love it. Paul called him the God of all comfort. Peter calls him the God of all grace. It's how God inter introduces himself to Moses back, back in Exodus 34. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Of all the names Peter could have called him, he didn't refer to God being fair, God being just. Both of those would have adequately described him. He didn't even refer to God being truth. The name he chose and the one thing he wanted to leave his audience with is that the character of their God is the God of all grace. Isn't that amazing? Think about this. Peter starts with grace, and that should give us hope. Just so you know, there's no imperative here, just a promise. Just a promise in verse 10. But this promise should cultivate an attitude for you, and that attitude is to be one of hope. The hope and what is our hope? The hope of the resurrection should sustain you and I in suffering. Man, Peter's been hammering this home over and over again. But in case it's still a question in your mind, let me make it really clear. You will suffer as a Christian. Suffering is certain, but it's also temporary. The Greek word for a little while there means a brief period or a season. So think about this. Glory is eternal. Suffering is tempor temporary. One of the biggest temptations of the believer is to confuse these two truths. Okay, here Paul, Paul said, this is what Paul had to say about suffering in Romans 8, 18. It says it's not worthy to be compared to the glory 
that is to be revealed to us. You see, you need to understand that one of the greatest moments of Peter's life happened on a really bad Friday, just before Resurrection Sunday. It was when he denied Jesus. You guys know the story. He watched Jesus die, and then something happened. It was the worst Friday of his life. He cussed out a poor little girl. He denied knowing Jesus. He was scared. He was hopeless. It was the worst day of his life. And his hope began to give away to doubt. And it seemed like death and darkness got the wind that night. Peter didn't celebrate Jesus' death on the cross, not that night. And not on Saturday or Friday, excuse me. He didn't, he didn't quite get it. He didn't understand it. And all he felt was uncertainty. All he felt was suffering. All he felt was fear. But then on Sunday, Jesus got up out of the grave. And just like that, everything changed for Peter. Because it wasn't long after the resurrection, the little old scared Peter became bold preaching Peter. In Acts 4, he goes before the same people. He was so scared of them, and he says this, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What was it? What happened? Now, most Pentecostals will say, well, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. But you're jumping the gun here. Listen. Now, what happened in Peter's life? The resurrection. He understood it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gave him hope, and that's what made him strong, and that's what gave him the conviction to preach the gospel no matter what people were saying, no matter what opposition he was facing. He had experienced the resurrection of Jesus, and he had hope. He had great hope, and that's the hope he's giving you. The the God who is all-powerful and who loves you will not leave you. Your suffering is only temporary. Some of you are here today saying, but Pastor Justin, you don't understand my suffering. You don't know what I have on my plate. You don't get it. You don't know what I'm carrying today. It's just way too much for you to ever understand. And I'm not going to argue with you. You're probably right. Truth is that I most likely don't get it. I don't understand what you're going through today because some of you are going through such pain that I, I couldn't even possibly understood it unless I was in your shoes. I couldn't even try or attempt to understand, but Jesus does. He suffered the wrath of God poured out for the sins of the world. That's what Hebrews 2.18 says. We have a great high priest who has suffered like us, so he's able to help us in our suffering. Jesus understands what you're going through today. Peter looked at Jesus' resurrection as a promise of the future resurrection of all believers. Peter understood that God's going to finish this story. He's going to finish it well. So New Heights Church, no matter what you face today, no matter what you face when you leave this service, our resurrected Jesus Christ will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. And he will establish you. And that's something that's worth praising God about. Some of you today are facing such difficulty and the burden of your suffering is so heavy that today I can only pray the hope of Jesus will lift it. That's all I can do to help you is pray that the hope of Jesus will lift that burden. Because some of you have to leave this sanctuary. You have to go right back to the situation. You have to go right back to the circumstance that you're facing. And all I can do as your pastor is pray that the hope of Jesus will lift that burden. You're in a bad Friday, and you desperately need resurrection hope. And I'm here to say, fix your eyes on Jesus, because he's the author and perfecter of your faith. And listen to me, Sunday, Sunday is coming. Sunday is coming. 
I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, Christians who do the most for this present world are those who think most of the next. Christians who make a difference in this world are ones that think of the next. Why is Peter pointing us back to to doing work. I told you about that story about that pastor. When I was at my darkest moment, my dad was battling a brain tumor and and death wasn't inevitable unless God did something. And I was so broken about it. And I remember that pastor, I so bad wanted him to, I don't know, maybe just listen and pray with me. And that pastor said, Justin, I think you need to get out and serve people. That's, that's really what C.S. Lewis is saying here. Christians who do the most for this present world are those who think most of the next. You see, what my pastor was trying to do is say, Justin, Sunday's coming. Focus on that. If you focus on that, you're going to think about other people. You're going to get busy for the, the kingdom, building for the kingdom. That's something to think about. Come on, church. Moving in verse 11, he goes to an attitude of worship. Look, look at this, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is called a benediction. This is called a blessing. He's blessing the Lord. Now, I think at this point, he's dictating, he's been dictating to Silas before he picks up the pen. And I think, I think about uh, what he just said about God's plan. He's just said this. Sunday's coming. It's just temporary. What you're facing is just temporary. And he pauses for a minute, and he can't help but burst into praise. Oh, praise God. I'm going to write that down. Praise God. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You get it? That when you have a worshiping heart, it keeps you from questioning the difficulties of life. One of the most powerful moments I've ever had, and I've shared it before, is when I watched my grandpa who lived a life of suffering. It's like the guy was born into suffering and just never could catch a break. His folks were some of the first assemblies of God missionaries of the country of China. They were there during World War II. They didn't get out in time when the Japanese invaded. They got put in a concentration camp. My grandpa turned 12 years old, I think it was, or 13 years old in the concentration camp, the worst year of his life. Now, his sisters in the other camp, they experienced God's protection and grace throughout that entire year in miraculous ways. My grandpa had to endure horrible, horrible things that no human being should ever have to experience in their life. He barely gets out. He gets out because somebody on the manifest died, and he got to go in their place. He gets to America, and it's only suffering from there. He ends up burying a sister at the age of like 22 or 23 years old. We lost almost 11 relatives in a boat accident. He buried a son, and then here he is burying my dad, his second son that he's buried. He's lived a life of sickness and pain, and we're all there in the viewing room, saying goodbye to my father when my grandpa walks in and everybody just gets quiet because here's this man who has just lived a horrible life, at least from my perspective. And I'm curious and I'm interested to see what he would do. How is he going to handle this? He's burying his second son. No mom and dad should ever have to bury a child. And he walks in on his, on his walker and he can't even get to it. And we, we finally come up and we say, can we, can we bring you over or you could say goodbye to dad and he says yes and we bring him over he puts his hands on the on the coffin because he can't hold himself and we all are just sitting there taking in this moment and out of my grandpa's mouth comes praise God praise God 
really took me by surprise. That is not what I was expecting. And before I could say anything, Grandpa begins to praise God. He begins to sing worship songs about God and his goodness and his faithfulness. And then all of a sudden, something changes in that room. Something changed in the atmosphere. And everybody in the family began to praise and worship God. And here's the crazy thing. We were right next to another viewing. And this family from the other room heard it, and they began to join in with praise, and God began to move. And that was what my Grandpa did his whole life. All of his life, that's what he would do. Praise God, no matter what I'm facing, no matter what I've, what I've faced in the past, no matter what I'm facing now, no matter what I have to face in the future, Sunday is coming, and I'm going to praise God, and I'm going to worship him. And it took his mind off focusing on the negative things, and it focused on God. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter just can't stop it. He's talking about Sunday coming, and he breaks into praise and worship. Try it sometime. You're going through something difficult, try worshiping God. I mean it. Just start praising him. Just start worshiping him. When you have a worshiping heart, you don't question God. You just worship him. And by the way, the word dominion, kratos, is the Greek word. It means strength, and it's only used here in the whole New Testament. And it speaks of God's ability to dominate. He is the dominant one. Nobody beats God. He doesn't lose. Nothing is beyond his control. Not our suffering, not Satan, not his demons, not the whole system. Nothing is beyond his control, and that's why we worship him. That's why we worship him. Not because we feel like it. We don't worship God because we feel like it. One of the things about about Christians that they complain about the most is, is worship. I'm going to get real pastoral with you for a moment, okay? seems that everybody has an opinion on worship, how we do worship service. Not at this church, of course, just we're talking in general here. I don't like these new songs. I don't like the old songs. I think the music's too loud. I don't think the music's loud enough. I don't like it when the lights are on. I don't like it when the lights are off. Everyone has an opinion about worship. The Apostle Paul, he would, he would help us by directing us to the object of our worship. I think that's what the Apostle Paul's response would be. He would direct our thoughts to the object of our worship. In fact, that's what he says in Philippians 4.20. He says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, all those complaints that I just listed about worship, they all had one word in common, I. I, I don't like this, I don't like that. I, when we let our personal preferences get in the way of our worship, we're no longer worshiping God alone. And we need to remember that God is the object of our worship. God, God. Someone once went to Pastor Francis Chan after a service, and they said they didn't really think the worship was very good. They let Pastor Chan. I am so thankful that I don't have people like that at New Heights Church. You guys are awesome. Pastor Francis Chan got this person who came up and said that I, I didn't like worship on uh, this Sunday morning. I, I didn't care for it much. And Pastor Chan looked at him and said, well, that's okay because we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> worship is not about the music, believe it or not. It's not about the music. We don't even need the music. 
We don't need these screens up here. We don't need the drums. We don't need the fancy instruments. We, we could actually go into a room with absolutely nothing and just a group of people, and we could worship. We could worship. Worship's an attitude. It's not about the music. Problem is our culture's made worship about us and not God. We worship God because he's God. He's God in the hymns. He's God in the contemporary. He's God in the cathedrals. He's God in a sanctuary. He's God in a gymnasium in mud huts, in the high-rise buildings. I worship God. I can worship God to any style of music in any type of building because God is God. Man, when I worked for Holland America, we would do tours through the Yukon Territory, and I remember being in Dawson City on a Sunday, and I read about a church service that they started. Do you, do you want to know where the church service gathered? True story, in an old brothel a building that was used for, for years and years as a bar and a brothel. And we went in that, and we raised our voices to Jesus, and we got our praise on. In a building that was a brothel, we can worship God anywhere, anywhere. We don't worship when we feel like it. Worship's about him, not us. When we truly comprehend that, it changes our attitude. So Peter gets it. He takes a moment, overwhelmed with God's goodness, and he just begins to praise God. We have a truth here, a principle to follow, and here it is. When this life is all over and the trials that shape your life are all over and the sufferings that bring growth and maturity to you are all over and death is all over and you're in heaven, we're going to look back and we're going to understand everything that God did and allowed was perfectly justified. We're finally going to get it. We're going to say glory to you, Lord. Now I get the big picture, the whole picture. There's not going to be any of this. Well, God... It was a time in my life, and I want to talk to you about it. It's not going to be that. Have you ever heard people say that, though? When I see God, there's one episode in my life he has some explaining to do. No way. You're going to see God, and nothing else is even going to matter. You're going to just praise God over and over. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Praise is all you're going to want to do. Remember, it wasn't long after my dad died, and I had this this attitude that, well, when I get to heaven, I want to know why. Why do you allow my dad to die so young? Why do you allow my dad to die just as he was getting going, just as things were going really good in ministry? Why would you take him out, someone who loved you, somebody who gave up everything for you? Why, 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 why? And that night I had a dream, and, and I remember in, in my dream I, I was in heaven. And in my dream I wanted to, I, you know, you're thinking I'm going to ask God, but when I was in heaven I just didn't have the need to ask God. It, it, there wasn't the need to know why. It didn't matter anymore. Everything God does is perfect and right and just. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. An attitude of worship. Peter then moves into verse 12, and here he's going to talk about an attitude of faithfulness. Look with me real quick, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter's coming to a conclusion here, and in his conclusion, as he closes this letter out, he mentions two other attitudes. One is found here in verse 12. Most scholars think Peter himself is picking up the pen here. He's probably been writing through a secretary. Now he takes the pen in his own hand, and he mentions an attitude of faithfulness. He mentions it indirectly, but it's there. Some of you are saying, wait a minute, Peter had somebody else write the letter, and he picked up the pen for this part. What does that do to the inspiration? Nothing. Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's telling this guy what to write, and that's what's taking place. 
And there's no reason, just so you know, to assume that this, this uh, man is, is any other than the Silas that we know throughout the Bible. Silas was a common name, but very likely it was the same Silas who traveled with Paul and is often mentioned in Paul's epistles. He was a prophet according to Acts. He was a Roman citizen according to the book of Acts. And so right here we get this little window into the life of Silas. And Peter calls him a faithful brother. A faithful brother as I regard him. That is an incredible title to have connected to you, isn't it? (laughs) Faithful. It's a reminder that as Christians we're to have an attitude of faithfulness. Look at what Peter says. I've written briefly to you. It's only five short chapters, but packed with so much truth. And what an incredible letter that Peter has just written. He says in it, I've been, I've been teaching and I've been declaring that this is the true grace of God. He's saying, look, I've been telling you about God's grace, his saving grace, his sanctifying grace, his grace through trials, his grace through sufferings. And I want you to stand firm in his grace. I want you to be faithful to it. That's what Peter's saying here. Silas was faithful. Will you be faithful? Stand in his grace. It's like Romans chapter 5, 2. In grace you stand. In grace you stand. Both Paul and Peter repeatedly throughout the entire New Testament said, be faithful, be faithful, be faithful. Now think about those two men for a minute. They both saw miracles that most of us could never imagine. They had ministries that that we would never ourselves experience. They experienced success that most pastors today will never see. Yet at the end of the apostle's life, what was Paul's primary concern? Faithfulness. In Acts chapter 20, 17, faithfulness was his concern. The end of his life, you've seen how I lived, Paul says. You've seen how I've lived. And then he says this, and you know that my only concern is to finish the task that Jesus gave me. That same Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 4, 2. What is required of stewards is that they be found faithful. Faithful. A steward is just a servant. He doesn't run the household. The master does. His only responsibility is to do what the master tells him. So if the master tells him to invest money in something that completely tanks, the steward doesn't take the blame. Yet on the other hand, if the master gives the steward an order that leads to great success, the steward doesn't get the credit. Okay, listen, success and failure are master words. Faithfulness is the concern of the steward. You are called to be faithful. What God requires of you is not success, but faithfulness in what he has assigned you to do. Listen, New Heights Church, what has Jesus called you to do? What has he called you to do? I can sit up here and tell you what he's called me to do, and I could preach it over and over and over, but I'm no fool. I understand that in order for this church to accomplish what God is asking us to do in this next season, he's going to call you. You're the church. He's going to put a call on your life. He's telling you to go activate that call and get a part of his mission. Get a part of it. What are you doing with your life? What are you doing? What has he called you to? Remember, you aren't responsible to save the world, but you're responsible to follow Christ in your own life and in your own situation. And you need to know this, for a servant, success in life is identifying what God has called you to and being completely faithful to it. I lived in India for a brief amount of time and then in Thailand for a little longer, and we literally saw the success. There is fruit to this day for missionaries who went, who all their lives, 
spent their entire life pouring everything into those countries and never even saw a convert. Never even saw a convert. And here Liz and I, we go to Thailand almost 100 years after that, and we see fruit from what they did, but they never saw it in their lifetime. They never once saw it. Missionaries, we read uh, their journals and journal entries, missionaries who never even saw a convert, and yet they would write about missionaries in other parts of the world who are seeing 100 people a day come to Jesus. And yet God didn't call them to that part of the world. God had called them to go to a place that was tough, that was hard soil, and they spent their entire life seeing no converts. They were successful missionaries. Success in, the life, in our life is identifying what God has called us to and then being completely faithful in it. And I'm telling you, New Heights Church, everyone who's here who has put their faith in Jesus, he has a calling for every single one of you. You have a purpose, and God could do more with one act of faithfulness than I could accomplish in a million lifetimes of my own. Do you understand that? Many of us need to change the questions when we ask. We come to a crossroads, where can I make the biggest impact? That's one of the questions we ask to where does God want me? Where does God want me? Here's a hint, okay? Most of the opportunities for faithfulness are already right in front of you. Listen to me. If you're a student today, if you're in junior high or you're in high school, faithfulness might mean staying committed to purity even though you feel like it isn't making a difference. That's being faithful. If you work in a really secular environment, it might mean you keep sharing the gospel even when you're ridiculed and humiliated in front of your fellow workers. Or what about the corporate world? It may just mean choosing integrity when everybody else is cutting corners. Or actually using your career to fulfill the mission of God instead of just seeing it as a ladder to propel your career and make the most. How about stay-home parents? You need to obey God in the most mundane aspects of everyday life because guess what? You have an audience every day with your children. Faithful. Being faithful. Sometimes it's difficult to really understand the power of faithfulness on this side of eternity. But one day, one day we're going to see how God uses us in everyday life situations. God has a purpose for you. And the small acts of faithfulness in the lives of other people, uh, others that God has put around us, our neighbors, our colleagues, the Starbucks barista that we see, uh, the McDonald's worker, and I only see them maybe once a month. (laughs) Remember that we serve an audience of one. You know what matters is what God thinks. He sees what we do in our service for him, and he's the one who we need to aim to please. God, I promise you, God sees the eternal significance in our faithful servants, service. And the best way to stay faithful is to remember why you're being faithful. So some of you here today, it sounds really good, Pastor Justin, but I hate my job. I know God's put me here. I know God's placed me here, but I hate it. Some of you might be, you heard God's voice tell you to do this, and you stepped out and maybe said yes to, to God, even though you didn't feel like it. And not only God, but the rest of the pastors were pushing you to start a small group, and maybe you didn't have a, as much people sign up as you thought would. And God is saying, be faithful, be faithful. And the best way to be faithful is to remember why you're being faithful. So if I'm doing it for anyone other than God, then I'm doing it for the wrong person. If I'm doing it because I want people to notice me so they'll think how wonderful I am or because someone has told me this is what I should be doing or for any other reason than to point Jesus Christ and glorify God, then I'm doing it for all the wrong reasons. This is something I have to tell myself all the time, too. I'm not just preaching at you. In fact, when I wrote that, it was for me, okay? 
serve God with the right heart and the right motivation because that's what, when God really gets glorified. I truly believe if every person who calls New Heights Church their home decided to offer their lives in service, we would see such a mighty move of God in our church. He is a way of multiplying the small things when we give them to him. We can perform miracles with the little that we give him. We see an example of this in the story of the boy who willingly gave his lunch. You guys know the story. It consisted of five small loaves, two fish, and Jesus. He gave this to Jesus who then multiplied it so that it fed over 5,000 people. Think about that. All God wants from you is faithfulness. God wants to use you in ways you never thought you could be used before. The power of the Holy Spirit is waiting to be unleashed in your life. Faithfulness. Number four, he moves in verse 13 through 14. This is our last attitude. Look with me, an attitude of affection. Verse 13 says, She who is at Babylon, who is, alike, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. I got in trouble in the second grade. I told you a story about Liam. Uh, his teacher told me he was kissing girls at school. He takes, he takes after his dad, unfortunately. I got, I got in trouble. I was one year older, but I got in trouble when I was in the second grade for doing the same thing, for kissing girls. And this verse got me in trouble because when my dad talked to me, I quoted this passage. I knew the Bible. I said, Dad, I'm just following Scripture. I'm greeting each other, greeting everyone in my class with a holy kiss, or at least all the ladies. Now, an attitude of affection. We don't actually see the word affection in these verses, but it's not in the text, but it's definitely implied. So a final word that speaks of love. Peter closes this letter not by commanding the attitude of love, but by personally illustrating it. His love is so evident here by the phrase, she who is in Babylon. She who is in Babylon, it refers to a church. Female terms for the church were very common in those days. You can check Second John 1 and 13. But Babylon most likely refers to Rome. It does at least in Revelation 17 and 18, and that seems to be the case here in our text this morning. In fact, one writer says it's a cryptic name for Rome because in times of persecution, writers would be extremely careful not to endanger the believers that they're writing these letters to. For instance, when John was banished to Patmos during the persecution that was instigated by the emperor, he called Rome Babylon. Peter, who mentions persecution in nearly every chapter of his epistle, he died a martyr's death. He died near Rome, and according to tradition, he was crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy of dying the same way as his Savior. So in short, Peter wrote this letter near the end of his life when he probably stayed in the city, and he didn't want the letter to be found or for the church to be persecuted. So maybe he kind of hid it under the, the word Babylon. But he closes with this, peace to all you who are in Christ. He ends by going back to the basics. <laughs> Isn't that great? Back to the basic attitudes, an attitude of hope, an attitude of worship, an attitude of faithfulness, and an attitude of affection. Church, let me tell you something. I'm going to close with this. There's no way to produce those in your life through just experience. These attitudes come from truth. And, and as the truth is poured into your life week in and week out, day in, day out, it begins to change your character and create these kind of attitudes. That's why we exist here as a church. New Heights Church is committed to God's word, and we believe that God is stirring a movement right now. 
We believe that. We believe it in our staff. We believe it in our board. We believe God is doing something in this church because God has a plan and a purpose. It's going to require some extra leadership, some extra initiative, but I, I know this church is up to the task. God is calling us to be a movement. He's calling us to be a movement, not a religious service where people come to to be served. He is calling us to be a movement. I love the story of Nicholas Ludwig, Count von Zinzendorf. <laughs> I like saying the name, really. In the early 18th century, he, he, was one, he started one of the greatest missionary movements in our history. He was born into Austrian nobility in Germany in 1700, 1700, and he was expected to follow his father's footsteps and go into a government position. Instead, he was much more interested in theology and religious work, and he visited Copenhagen in 1731, and he had met a converted slave from the West Indies. This encounter would change his life forever, and he, he was looking for someone to go back to his homeland to preach the gospel to his slaves. Zinzendorf found two volunteers from the Moravian community that were living on the estate, and this became the first Moravian, these two became the first Moravian missionaries and the first Protestant missionaries of the modern era. And within two d decades, Zinzendorf sent missionaries around the globe, including North American Indians. But he had a motto for his life, his one-line one motto that defined the whole movement, and it was this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That was his motto for the movement, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. New Heights Church, I think that should be our motto too. I'm not encouraging you to go out and die, <laughs> but I'm encouraging you to live your life preaching the gospel. And at the end of our life, it's okay if we're forgotten as long as he's remembered. That's why we do what we do. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. One of my favorite missionaries, Adoniram Judson, wrote this letter to Mr. Hasseltine to get permission to marry his daughter, Anne. And I want to read this for you, close, close out reading this. He says this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a foreign and dangerous lands and her subjection to hardships and sufferings of a missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immoral souls, for the sake of heaven and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from lost nations saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? I have a daughter. She's turning 13 this year. Try to put myself in this situation if somebody wanted to go to a country that was dangerous and he, he asked for my daughter's hand this way. You know, I don't know if you know her story, but she, he consented. She went. She died. She died there in Asia. But after she died, she left 7,000 Christians in a place where previously there had been none. 
She joined the long ranks of Christians who say, it's worth it. He's worth it. God wins the world through people who say, it's not about me. And Jesus is worth it. And they pick up the towel and they serve whatever the cost. Embrace these attitudes. And Peter's saying, you're going to make it. Peter's saying the world is a difficult place. You're on a journey to heaven. You're going to make it if you embrace these attitudes. You need to think about the Sunday that's coming. I just taught, I just gave the vision for our our growth track. If you have not done the growth track, sign up and do the growth track. We offer it every month. You get to hear the vision where we're wanting to go as a church. But I told them today in our meeting, our church will be a movement. We are not going to be a religious organization. We are not just going to have a Sunday service that you come and attend. We are going to be a movement. I don't care about getting people in these seats just to fill an auditorium. I want to see real life change. I want to see transformation of hearts and minds. I know we live in a scary time in America right now, but I serve a bigger God. And it's a platform for God to be praised and God to be glorified. God is moving in our church right now. We talk about our next steps at the end of every single service. And you might be looking at it and say, Pastor Justin, for the last four weeks, have had the next steps be join a small group. And he did it again. Must have been an accident because you can't even sign up for a small group. No, I did not do it on accident. It was very intentional because there still is one group you can sign up for. If you have not signed up for a small group, I want you to go today and I want you to sign up. This is a part of our spiritual life to do small groups, be connected. We believe in we're going to know God and find freedom. We find freedom through authentic relationships. That's what we do. We don't find freedom just by coming to one service on a Sunday. We need community. We need fellowship. And there's one small group that I'm going to let you sign. You can sign up anytime throughout this, this next quarter. And that's one that meets here on Wednesday night right here in the sanctuary starting at 7 p.m. How to read the Bible for all it's worth. <laughs> so you can tell I really like God's word. I'm challenging you, come out 7 o'clock on Wednesday, join this small group, learn how powerful the Word of God is, and learn how when you read it accurately and you apply it to your life accurately, you experience real-life transformation. Come out, come out, join a small group. If you're not in a small group, join a small group. God has a plan and a purpose for you. We need you in this church. We're about to go make a dent in this world. We're going to do it for him. We're going to live we're going to live and die, preach the gospel and make him famous. Father, we love you, praise you and we just we give you all the glory right now. Lord, we know you are moving. I know you're moving in the hearts of the people and as we close this service, God, and as the worship team leads, I pray the Holy Spirit would move. I pray the Holy Spirit would move in our service right now. You have all the freedom to move in our lives and in this service, and we just pray for a mighty move of your Holy Spirit, God. We acknowledge we're desperate for you. We can't do it without you. And so, God, I thank you for every person here today. I thank you for the plan that you have for their life, the plan that you have for this church, and I thank you for the direction you're taking us. And I give you praise and glory for it. And everybody says, amen. Thank you.